Seeking the Lord's blessing, we can turn to Genesis chapter 22, and we'll read again at verse 2. Genesis chapter 22 at verse 2. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. <coughs> in some respects, this chapter opens in a strange way. It tells us that it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, or as the word would have been better translated, test, that God did test Abraham. As though, in other words, he did not seem to have been tested up till this point at all, when in fact the whole of his life really was a succession of tests. And if you read the history of Abraham at all, you'll understand that, that his life was one test after another appointed to him by God. But still, this whole incident is spoken of, obviously, as being supremely the test, the appointed test which God set before Abraham as though there were no other test like it in his life. And indeed, that is the case. This is the test that most went against flesh and blood. This was the command that God gave, God gave that was hardest to fulfill, hardest to keep and to obey. This was supremely God's test of Abraham. And I would not be surprised if it was true that all the Lord's people have a particular test in their own experience that is supreme, a test greater than all other tests. Our life is indeed a succession of them. But here is the supreme one, and I want to look at it with you because it is very, very important in many ways, not just as a test, but it's important in what it taught Abraham and in what it taught or teaches ourselves also. Now, I think really it's better to look at it in those two ways. We'll take it first simply as a test. What kind of test was this of Abraham's faith? How did he pass this test? How did he meet it? How did he pass it? And then secondly, I want to look at the wider significance of this incident of Abraham offering up his son. What was it designed at the end of the day, when it was all over, what was it designed to teach Abraham? And what exactly does it teach ourselves? And I believe that with me you will see that it teaches many glorious things, and that Abraham's faith was enriched and enlivened on this day, and that he was taken higher in God's providence than he had ever been before. So it's a singularly important event in the life of the patriarch Abraham. Now, first of all, we'll take it simply as a test, and as a test, it is a staggering one. It is almost difficult to comprehend just how hard it was for Abraham to do what God asked him to do. Take thy son and offer him for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, the test is hard because, of course, it is his son. Many a burnt offering Abraham had put up before God. It was always a goat or a lamb or something of that kind. But God suddenly breaks into this man's life and says, 
offer as a burnt offering your son, your son, your own flesh and blood. And then again, it is his only son. And we're told that three times in verse 2, verse 12, and in verse 16. It is emphasized, thine only son. And you know yourselves, my friends, the bond that there is between a father and his only son. Unless something has disrupted that, there is a particularly close and intimate bond between parents and an only child, especially between a father and an only son. And then just to make it even more intense, it is emphasized, whom thou lovest, in verse 2. God himself says it to him, take your son, your only son, that's a step further, and a step further still, whom thou lovest. It is not a son, in other words, that has been alienated from him. It is not a son and a father into whose relationship a breach has come, not like the prodigal son and his father. It is between a father and son who share a close bond of affection, who share the same religion, who love one another deeply, and who do most, if not all, things together. It is into that relationship that God comes and says, Take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now this man Abraham had waited 100 years for this son. And this son, this son he had loved now for something like 18 to 20 years. He was a grown lad. He was not a small boy. And he was a son that he looked to for great things and expected great things from him. God had, after all, renewed miraculously his own body. And he had renewed his wife's body too. We are told that Sarah was past the age of childbearing. God renewed them and made them able to bring this child, this precious son of his old age, into the world. And he loved him, he loved him dearly, and he loved him deeply. And God says to him, return him to me. There in the peak of his youth, full of promise and full of affection, return him to me and offer him to me as a burnt offering. And as if that is not hard enough, the trial only becomes more difficult as it proceeds. Because you'll notice, first of all, that God does not say offer him immediately as a burnt offering, but travel for 40 miles and for three days and then offer him as a burnt offering. And that is far, far more difficult to do. Abraham is camped in Beersheba, which borders the land of the Philistines, and he's to make his way up to a land called Moriah. Now that's going to become important later on. He has to go to Moriah to offer the son there on the top of one of the mountains. And remember that, one of the mountains of which God would tell him. So all that distance of 40 miles, he must travel with a son into whose heart he is to plunge a knife. And he must bear and carry that with him for three days and for three nights. And that in itself becomes important as we go on. And that makes the trial harder. And of course he is traveling with his son. And do you notice how often that little detail is brought out? If you look at the very last clause of verse 6, the last clause of verse 6 reads like this, And they went, both of them, together. It ignores the servants. They went, both of them, together. Look at the last clause of verse 8. So they went, both of them, together. It's as though there is only the two of them there. And so indeed to Abraham it is. He sees none, save Isaac only, and the God whom he is following in faith. 
fulfilling a commandment that he can hardly begin to understand. So they went, both of them, together, and every step of that way he is beside his son Isaac. And then again there is no human support for him in his trial. Now people often ask, did he tell Sarah? I firmly believe that he did not, that he did not. There are occasions when a command is so commanding and requires such urgent haste that it is wrong for you to consult with flesh and blood. As when the Lord constrained Paul to proclaim the gospel, Paul said immediately, I did not confer with flesh and blood, but I went. Abraham knew that Sarah would probably try to restrain him, although on other occasions she showed greater spiritual discernment than himself. For example, in the whole matter of Ishmael, Sarah understood what kind of person Ishmael was many years before Abraham understood what kind of person Ishmael was. Nevertheless, he felt that to share this with anyone was inviting disaster. Because he knew and he trembled, he knew his own weakness, he knew that one hand laid upon him saying, don't do that, may be enough to make him not do it. He didn't consult. He went and he did what he had to do. And in the fifth verse, he says to the servants, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. So there again he leaves those people behind and he goes to do the work himself. There are some things, my friends, that we just have to enter into on our own. And even when the Lord took Peter, James, and John with him into the Garden of Gethsemane, still he went away from them a stone's throw, because the wrestling he had with his father was, as it were, for himself alone. Some things you must face on your own, and this was one of those things for Abraham. He could not bear someone restraining him at that time. And that can apply to something even as simple as the Lord impressing upon your conscience that you must take his cross upon your back, follow him, that you must attend the prayer meeting. Sometimes it is just, in fact always, it is wrong for you to consult with flesh and blood. Where the divine impulse comes to do such a thing, to delay is fatal. You must not stay nor linger long like the slothful. You must put your hand to the plough and go and do it before you are restrained from it. And Abraham knew that this was urgent business and to delay was fatal, so he went and did it and human supports were left behind. But of course you'll notice that from that moment the wood must be laid on the back of his son. In verse 6 we're told that he laid the wood upon Isaac and he made the last part of the journey in that condition. And then again there's another factor in verse 7 where Isaac turned. Now these are all trials within a trial. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, My father, and is that not sharper than the knife that he had in his hand? My father, here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham gives this reply, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now, please don't understand that to mean that Abraham knew there was a ram in the thicket. He did not know there was a ram in the thicket. That makes the whole thing a joke and a charade. He did not know there was a ram in the thicket. He speaks of a lamb here. Abraham is discreet. He does not wish to reveal to Isaac what is happening until that precise moment arrives. 
But at the same time, God causes him to speak more than he knew himself. He speaks as a prophet, and he speaks deeply. And as all the prophets spoke, he goes out further than he can begin to imagine himself. He just says, God will provide for himself a lamb. That is all. And in that, there is a depth that Abraham does not fully realize himself. God has, of course, provided a lamb. And because of that lamb, all our firstborn are not slain. Because of that lamb, you live. And because of that lamb, by God's grace, I live with you. As a prophet, he spake more than he knew. It, he did not know that there was a ram in the thicket. Now, you can see then what a severe test this was for Abraham. What a severe and demanding and exacting thing God required. I'm sure he wondered if it was an angel of light, the devil as an angel of light that had asked it of him in the first place. I'm sure he wondered what was it or who was it or what voice had spoken to him when such a thing was asked of him. Did he wonder if it was the devil playing tricks with him, seeking to mislead him? Was it the devil asking him to frustrate God's purposes because God had told him all his life that Isaac was to be the son through whom the seed was to come, through whom the Messiah was to be born, the saviour of himself and the saviour of the world. But in one way or another, God makes clear to him that this is himself that is speaking. It is his voice, the voice that Abraham has long known and long recognized. There's no mistaking it. It is no deception. It is no satanic delusion. It is God that speaks and God that asks. And because it is God that asks, Abraham responds. And how does he respond to the test? Well, like you should respond and like I should respond, you should go out and do it. Whatever God asks and requires, do it. He requires obedience. And obedience is better than sacrifice. And you notice that Abraham obeys promptly. Now, there's something wonderful in this expression in verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. Now, in the chapter before this, and you can read it at some point yourself, Abraham has to sacrifice another son. And that's often overlooked. I don't mean literally. It wasn't something like this, but Abraham had to expel Ishmael from his own home. Now, that was no easy thing for Abraham to do. Sarah had wanted to do it for a long time, but Abraham saw no need for it until God came and told him, listen to your wife. What your wife says is from me, and you must turn that young man out of your home. Now, listen to what Abraham said. Now, if you go back to chapter 21 here, and verse 11, well, actually, we can begin reading at verse 10. And this is Sarah speaking to Abraham. Chapter 21, verse 10. Wherefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And listen, the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said to Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And if you go to verse 14, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread 
and a bottle of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. Now do you notice an expression that appears there? He rose up early in the morning. He had to put one son whom he loved, in spite of his waywardness, out of the home, and that was hard for flesh and blood. And in the next chapter, he's asked to take another son whom he loves even more deeply and to offer him as a burnt offering to God. In both cases, the deed demands to be done, and he gets up early in order to do it. What does that reveal? It reveals a man who is prompt in what he is doing. A man who knows what he has to do, and a man who does not wait to do it. It is a hard thing, and as I said, to delay is fatal. Now, my friends, this comes into so many things. It comes into so many things. The importance of responding immediately to a difficult thing that God asks you to do. You know yourself that if you're confronted with any kind of difficulty, if you put that thing off, it becomes harder to do. Even most mundane things are like that. You postpone it, even if it's confronting somebody about sin, or taking any matter in your hand, or even attending a prayer meeting, like I said. You delay the matter. You delay the matter, and you're inviting disaster. Into the delay, the devil comes. The doubts come. The insinuations come. Abraham, once he recognizes the voice of God, he goes and does the thing. He rises up early in the morning, and he does his duty. And he does his duty deliberately. Now, I want you to notice how often all his actions are minutely detailed. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, claved the wood for the offering, rose up and went to the place of which God told him. And then again at the bottom of the mountain in verse 6, you're given the same detail. Abraham took the wood, laid it upon Isaac, took the fire in his hand and a knife and went both of them together. Again in verse 9 and 10 at the top of the mountain you have the same detail. Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar, stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now there again you have a man who is determined to do the will of God. Each step of it is difficult. At every step he hears a voice saying stop it. But at each step he goes on and he does it deliberately and he does it methodically. And it all brings before us the trained character of a man of God who has spent all his life in obedience, not making excuses for disobedience, but who has come out and who has faced the wind and who has done the job in hand and who has done it properly. Every task is hard, but every task he puts his hand to. Flesh and blood fainted with every detail recorded there, but he goes and does it. And the whole portrait is drawn out for us as Abraham, the man of faith, Abraham, the man of God, the man who put God first and did what God wanted him to do. No wonder his name is high in the annals of the church. No wonder he is the father of the faithful in whose footsteps we should follow. Would that we were all like that. Would that we would all face all these challenges in these ways and do everything that God asks us methodically and in a disciplined fashion that we ourselves would have a better heritage to pass on to our children. He is an obedient man. He does it promptly, deliberately, and he does it methodically. And of course, last of all, he binds Isaac. 
And Isaac, of course, doesn't murmur. Isaac doesn't struggle. We'll come on to that in a while. And he lays him on the altar. And with no doubt a trembling hand, he takes the knife. And believe you me, he is ready to plunge it into the heart of the only son whom he loves. Until, as you know, God intervenes. The same voice that told him to do it is the same voice that now says to him, Abraham, touch not your son. Lay not thine hand upon thy son. And then, of course, Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees a ram caught in the thicket. And he sees God's substitute there. He takes the ram, and on that day, he sacrifices it. And on that day, Abraham passes a test with flying colors. Now, before I pass on with you to the real significance of what's going on here, I want to say a couple of words about trials in general. I said already that God tests us, and that usually he has one great test through which all his people must pass. Now, in one way or another, these tests will focus on this. Do you recognize that God owns you, or do you claim to own yourself? Do you recognize that God has given you all you've got, and that it still belongs to God, or do you claim something for yourself? And that was the test that was presented before Abraham here, and it's the acid test of your faith and mine. If you love the Lord, you will give anything to him, and you will lose anything for him, and you will lose anything for his sake, if he so asks it of you. Was that not what the Lord pressed upon the rich young ruler when he told him to sell all that you have and to give to the poor? It's the acid test of your religion. It's one thing to lose a son. It's another thing to give a son. Jacob lost Joseph, but he had to give Benjamin. He couldn't help what happened to Joseph. But God caused him to come face to face with giving Benjamin, and he gave Benjamin. And that was Jacob's finest ever. And God will ask you in one way or another, or he will test in one way or another, whether your love to him is greater than your love to anything else in the world. He will, my friend. He will do that in one way or another. And I wonder if the Lord were to test us all today in a day of, let me say, very superficial religion. I wonder where we would all come out and where our faith would be seen. If God were to shout you and to say, John, John, or Mary, Mary, or whatever, to do something of this kind, where would I stand? Where would you stand? What kind of faith have I got? What faith has the church got? What faith is there going around today? Do you think it's as real and as substantial as what our fathers had? Or our grandfathers? Or our forefathers? Or is it something that would be blown away at the slightest whiff of a real trial or a real searching fire from God? Do you think your faith would stand in the 17th century in the days of the Covenanters? Do I think mine would? I'd better ask myself, and you'd better ask yourself, if that's the kind of faith we've got. It's an easy day to profess something superficial, to profess to believe in Jesus. But is what you've got a reality, or is it skin deep? That's what Abraham was tested on. And, as I said, if I'm not mistaken, God will find some way to test it to ourselves as well. It would be good for us if he did. 
rather than to leave us in the condition in which we sometimes find that the church is in. Another thing is this. Whenever God greatly tests his people, he gives a great reward when that test is passed. A great reward when that test is passed. He does that here to Abraham. He gives him a vision when it's all over, a renewed promise from himself, and a renewed vision of his glory. He recommits himself. He swears. This is the first time God swears. In verse 16 of chapter 22, God says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven. God renews his promise. And as well as that, God gives him, in this very transaction on the mountain, a new insight that would feed Abraham's faith for the rest of his life. Now, my friend, the water may be deep and the fire may be hot, but you persevere in it. You stick close to the Lord and obey him inside it. Every single test is trying to get you to budge out of the path of obedience. That's what it's there for. That's what it's there for. And sometimes it's pretty hard to stick on it and to do what he wants and to do what is right. But stick on it. Because through the fire and the water, or on the other side, there is the wealthy place. That's a place of liberty, of spiritual blessing and spiritual enrichment. Pass through the valley of the trial and you'll ascend a mountain and you can see further than you've ever seen before. You can see better than you've ever seen before. You will see far more clearly. And who among you can deny that? Have you not reached that point where you said, that was good for me. That was good for me. I see better. I see more clearly. And the Lord has blessed me through it. And so here we see that trial is rewarded, or obedience is rewarded greatly by the blessing of God. Now I said at the beginning that there was something deeper in this trial than just a test, and so there is. <clears throat> because this teaches us some very important things. Let me put it this way. In the New Testament, this incident is referred to in two ways, or it's connected with two things. It's connected with the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, and it's also connected specifically with the person and the work of Christ. In other words, when this sacrifice of Isaac is brought up in the New Testament, these are the two things it is used to illustrate. The resurrection from the dead, that it is a truth, and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at these two things with you. First of all, the resurrection from the dead. Now that's how it's brought up before us in the epistle to the Hebrews. The New Testament explains the old, and the old also explains the new. Hebrews 11, and in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And then what was going on in his mind is revealed in verse 19, accounting or reckoning that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also 
receive them in a figure. In other words, God is testing whether Abraham really believes in the afterlife. Whether he really believes in heaven and hell, whether he really believes in the resurrection of the dead. The physical, can we say, resurrection from the dead. God is testing him whether he really believes that or not. And Abraham knows it. After all, Abraham has a promise from God that everything in the world is suspended upon Isaac. No Isaac, no Christ. No Christ, no salvation, no redemption. He knows that. He knows that Isaac is absolutely pivotal to God's work of redemption in the world. And on the other hand, there's God saying, put your son to death. There's only one way in which Abraham can reconcile these two things in his mind. That God will take Isaac and raise him from the dead. And he has to believe that. I say, well, that's just a naked matter of faith. Not when it's your own son. And not when you're confront confronted with it face to face. And not when it's a burnt offering. Now, my friends, maybe you have not really noticed that before, but it's not a matter of plunging the knife into his heart and waiting for God, as it were, to revive him. No. God did not just ask Abraham to kill Isaac, but to offer him up as a burnt offering in verse 2 upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, what's a burnt offering? The burnt offering was the offering where the whole thing was consumed utterly and completely. The animal was engulfed in flames and it was allowed to burn until the whole thing was reduced to cinders and ashes. And that is what God asks Abraham to supervise with respect to his own son. Not just to put a knife into his son, but to set fire to him and to watch as he smolders into ashes and into cinders. And to watch as the wind on top of that mountain blows and scatters the ashes and the charred remains of his son Isaac across the four corners of the globe. That is what he's being asked to do and that is what he's being asked to witness. In other words, his faith in the resurrection and in the afterlife must be so real and so compelling. His belief in God must be so powerful and so deep-rooted that he is even prepared to believe that God will take these very ashes that are blowing and these cinders, the charred remains of his beloved son, and there and then form and fashion them into a body and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, even as he did with Adam at the beginning of the world. And that in a very real way connects his faith with my own and with yours, because that's precisely what you are meant to believe. When you lay your own beloved into the ground and you do so in faith, you believe that that body will indeed be eaten by worms. You believe that it will smolder, that it will decay, and that it will corrode. Many a body has been lost overboard, and there has gone to be eaten by all the fish of the sea. But you believe that by faith, God can reclaim every single particle of that body and reform and refashion it into a glorious resurrected body which will be able to bear the weight of your renewed and your rejuvenated soul. Is that not true? Is that not our faith that we express? Is that not why we bury our dead? Because the dust is precious to us and because God will raise that dust. And that is what Abraham is asked to believe 
and he acted as one who believed it. And that is why he received Isaac from the dead in a figure. Now that's a strange expression, but it means in a parable. Hebrew says he offered up Isaac accounting that he was able to raise him from the dead, from whence he also received him in a parable, in a figure or in a parable. In other words, when God said, lay not thine hand upon thy son, Abraham saw there the resurrection from the dead, because he was as good as dead in his mind. He was as good as dead in his purposes. He was reconciled to killing him. In fact, please notice the expression in Hebrews is that he offered up Isaac. It's not that when he was about to offer up Isaac, but that he offered him up. Why does it use that tense of, of the verb? Because it was done and completed. That's why. It was done in his will. He offered up Isaac. But there and then he saw the resurrection. He saw it in a parable. He saw it in a figure. When God said, leave him. The living Isaac that got up off that altar was to him a parable of the resurrection from the dead. Do you believe the resurrection from the dead? Ah, my friend, what a glorious thing it will be. Even your soul in heaven, as Calvin says, will only be in anticipatory blessedness in heaven until the body is reunited to it and until that blessedness is complete. Your soul in glory will not be able to fully express itself until it has a renewed body to contain it. Do you think that God could use this very body to contain a completely renewed soul? No, he could not. We could not bear his love and his grace in this body. We need a new one. Or the old one transformed. The old one changed. You know, some people laugh at the whole idea of God reclaiming particles of dust or particles of matter and reforming them. You know, someone pointed out in the past that many of God's miracles are, are just um, an extended form of what you already see in Providence. For example, you're here today and let's, supposing, let's suppose that you had a cup of coffee before you came out to the church. Where did those coffee beans come from? Let's say they came from Colombia or Brazil or somewhere like that. Do you realize that a particle of the ground of Brazil is in your body and forms part of your muscle and forms part of your sinew? The food that you have obtained from where? From England, Scotland, wherever it has come, in many parts of the world, you assimilate it and digest it? God ordered that from the foundation of the world, that your body just now should consist of particles of the earth from all over the world. Is it an impossible thing for God to repeat the procedure at the end of the world? Of course it is not. He who formed the whole world by the mere word of his power can summon everything from anywhere and form and fashion it into anything that he desires. And that's what will take place on that day. The body of the damned will be resurrected and the body of the saved will be resurrected. The one to bear punishment and the other to bear blessedness. Oh, my friend, the resurrection of the dead is a hope that we cherish and a precious doctrine. You whose body is rotting or corroding, you who have a terminal disease, you remember if you have faith in Christ that one day your body will be glorious, will be glorious in heaven, and nothing can take that hope away from you. I pity those whose bodies are whole just now, but you will find them very different when the rewards are meted out. 
The other thing that's brought before Abraham here is the work of Christ. <clears throat> now, this is important. The Lord says in John chapter 8, now let's get a hold of this. He says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now Christ is saying there that Abraham foresaw Christ's day. He foresaw his work. He foresaw his ministry. Now the place he saw it most clearly was in his son Isaac. In everything to do with Isaac's birth and with Isaac's person, God, Abraham was seeing the Messiah. The Messiah to come. The Messiah to come. And the most important incident in Isaac's life was this one, when he was offered up on Mount Moriah. And this is where more clearly than anywhere else, Abraham saw the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's take it bit by bit. First of all, he saw the place where God was to save the world. He says to him in verse 2, Get thee into the land of Moriah. Now Abraham had to go 40 miles to get there, but he had to get there because that's where God desired him to be. It became a famous place later on because when the plague was raging through Israel, God stopped it at Mount Moriah when David sacrificed. Notice the importance, he sacrificed on Mount Moriah and the plague stopped. But Mount Moriah is important because everyone acknowledges that it's in the vicinity of Calvary. Now I would go further than that and say that Calvary is on the precise site where this took place. Now there's no use in claiming any other traditions where people point out as being Calvary or where people point out as being the very spot where Abraham sacrificed his son. These things are vague. But what is not vague is verse 14 of Genesis 22 where it says that Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, or the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. What shall be seen? God's intervention shall be seen. God's salvation shall be seen in the mountain of the Lord. And you'll notice in verse 2 that he was to be offered... If you read the last part of verse 2, offering there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains in Moriah. Moriah was a place. And he's to offer it on one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And that place becomes known as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now why ask Abraham to make a 40 mile trek to this place? and then call it this name, God's provision. If that's not the very spot in Jerusalem where the Lord was to provide the suffering Savior, where the Lord was to provide his own Isaac and to bind him upon that cross and to put him to death for your sins and mine if we believe in him. So Abraham learned that day where God was going to liberate his own church and to provide redemption for the world. It was on Mount Moriah the Lord will provide and how wonderfully the Lord has provided for ourselves. And then secondly, when Abraham would come down from this mountain and when he would think about all that had happened, he would focus on Isaac as the object of his sacrifice. 
And what would he see? Well, he would see first a son who didn't struggle and a son who didn't resist his father's will. Now, remember, you're not dealing with a six or seven-year-old. We're talking here about a man who is at least 18 or 19, probably well into his 20s. But read verse 9. And they came to the place which God had told them of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. Now you would expect Isaac to at least ask a question, to struggle, to resist his hundred-year-old father, who I'm sure he could overcome in a moment if he so desired, but he did not, because Isaac was a godly man as well. And here Isaac was prefiguring the lamb who was led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is done, so he opened not his mouth. Isaac does not murmur, Isaac does not complain. As the Isaac of the New Testament neither murmurs nor complains. Abraham understands that when God is going to send the Savior into the world, he will be a willing victim. One who comes voluntarily and one who comes glad to do his father's will. And Abraham understands that clearly for the first time. All his life, every time he's sacrificed, he knows that God's sending someone into the world. Now he knows that he's to be a willing victim, someone who will willingly suffer to save the church. And then I would assert this. I believe it firmly that for the first time Abraham saw that God was sending someone closely related to himself. Because Abraham was asked to give his own son his only son. Did he not here for the first time understand that God was sending his own son and his only son to be the saviour of the world and the saviour of the lost? After all, he recognises on this day the transaction that takes place. And he sees that God is providing for the world someone that it costs him to give. Are we not told in Romans that God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for his all? Freely gave him up for his all. And when God bound his own son upon Calvary's cross, and when he nailed him to the tree, as in the highest way we must understand it, God knew that there was no intervention possible. There was to be no voice, as it were, saying, Lay not thine hand upon thine only beloved son. The deed had to be done, for it is God himself that was doing it. God gave someone he loved more than Abraham ever loved Isaac. And God loved the son more than you love anyone, and more than anyone loves you. But God gave him, and he did not intervene. Do you not think that I could summon legions of angels? Uh, maybe you could, but it was not the Father's will for it to be so. He spared not his only begotten son. And I firmly believe that Abraham saw that for the first time on Mount Moriah. And then again, the Jews 
believed that there was always something significant in the Old Testament about the third day. And they laid stress on this passage that the third day has a significance here, and so it does have a significance. Because on the third day, Abraham receives back Isaac from the dead. We're told that he offered him up, that he was dead, but that he received him on the third day. Is that not again something that is looking forward to the Christ who is really dead, not in a parable, but really dead? But on the third day, he is resurrected as the first fruits of a new world and of a better world. On the third day, on the third day, the two going to Emmaus were sad, but they became glad because they said, the Lord has risen, crucified on Mount Moriah, but raised again and came out of the tomb. Well, my friends, here you have Christ's person and work. Here you have, by God's grace and by faith, your resurrection and mine. May it indeed be so. May you learn to stand these trials. Because if we get a glimpse of anything as rich as Abraham got, it'll be well worth standing them. What a God and what a Savior we have who does great things for us. May the Lord bless these thoughts and his word. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, the grace to acknowledge that the work is thine and that thou hast provided a Savior. We thank thee for the ram that was caught in the thorns. For even in looking at that ram, surely Abraham saw another vision of the Lord in his glory, caught indeed in the cursed thorns of our sins, but nevertheless raised again from the dead. We praise thee for such great types and for such great symbols, but we praise thee for the great transaction that took place upon the cross. O Lord, enable us all to close in with him by faith, that we might be saved. Take away anything that may have been inconsistent with the truth, and do thou apply it to our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen.